How well do you know your significant other? I'm not asking this to make you look at the other half a little weird right now, especially if you're sitting right next to them, but could they have had a secret life? Maybe you should look at them a little weird. Because today's story is about a guy who had a secret life, a dark life. But he lived every day like a normal person. He went to work, church, or grocery store, he helped people out. He was a neighbor, and he was a husband. But as he stood around all of these innocent people, he had one of the most horrific secrets that anyone could hide. I'm your host, Goy Atkins, and this is the story of John List. In December 1971, neighbors of the Breeze Knoll Mansion in Westfield, New Jersey grew concerned. They knew that the owners of the mansion, John and Helen List, were out of town on vacation with their three children. They had been out of town since the beginning of November. But before leaving for a vacation, John and Helen must have forgotten to turn off the lights in the 19-bedroom Victorian-style mansion. Because every day and every night, the lights were on until they slowly burned out one by one. On December 7th, the neighbors called the police. Officers arrived on scene and they walked around the mansion. There were no signs of anything suspicious that they could see from the windows of the house, and after talking to the neighbors, they learned that the family was supposed to be in North Carolina visiting an ill family member. So the cops didn't have any reason to suspect that anything weird was going on inside the house, and they left. But later that night, the cops got another call to respond to the mansion. This time, the drama teacher to 16-year-old Patricia List was at the house. He found it odd that Patricia hadn't been in school for so long. And when he went to the house to check on her, he walked around and he found an unlocked window that led to the basement. This time, the officers had an unsecured window, so they decided to check inside the house. As they made their way through the basement, there was classical music playing throughout the house. Then they made their way to the ballroom, where they found sleeping bags that were zipped up on the floor. In the sleeping bags were the bodies of 16-year-old Patricia, 15-year-old John Jr., 13-year-old Frederick, and 46-year-old Helen List. Horrified and stunned, the officers began clearing the rest of the mansion as the classical music continued to fill the dark house. Once they reached the attic, they found John's mother, 84-year-old Alma, who was also killed. The only person missing from the family was John List. The police also found a five-page letter that John left on his desk in which he confessed to killing his family in order to save their souls because there was just too much evil in the world. But there was no sign of John, and there wouldn't be for a very, very long time. So how in the world does a family in a mansion get murdered and no one notice? Well, let's rewind a little bit for that. John List was born September 17, 1925 in Bay City, Michigan. 
Growing up, John was a devoted Lutheran, and he eventually became a Sunday school teacher at his church. In 1943, John joined the army and was a laboratory technician during World War II. John was discharged from the army in 1946. He then went to the University of Michigan where he received his bachelor's degree in business administration and a master's in accounting. Then in 1950, John was recalled to active duty for the Korean War and he moved to Virginia. While he was in Virginia, he went to a bowling alley where he met then Helen Taylor, who already had a daughter named Brenda. John and Helen, they fell in love quickly. They married in December of 1951 as the army was reassigning John to their finance corps and moving the family to Northern California. But this wasn't an all sunshine and rainbows love story. It was quite the opposite. Over the next nine years, Helen battled with alcoholism and became very unstable. Brenda ended up moving out of the house after getting married, which left John and Helen with the other three children. John then moved the family to New York where he took a job with Xerox. Then, in 1965, John took a job as a vice president at a bank in New Jersey. This is when John and Helen moved into the Breeznow Mansion at 431 Hillside Avenue. In 1965, the average home costed about $21,000 in America. Breeze Knoll came in at a whopping $50,000. And here's an important lesson that I hope everyone today can understand. Well, I hope no one goes to the lengths that John did. Status still affects people. Because no matter how well someone looks like they are doing, sometimes that's all it is. It's just looks. And there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. Today, with Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and other social media, it's easy to fall into the trap of seeing what everyone else is doing or what they have, or what it looks like they have. In 1971, social media was far from being discovered, but the status of how people saw John still affected him. John lost his job at the bank. Normal people, if they lose their job, they'll probably tell their spouse, especially if you have kids to take care of and a house payment for a mansion. But John didn't tell anyone. In fact, he acted like everything was all good and he was still working at his job. John got dressed every morning in a suit and tie and walked out the door with his briefcase. But instead of going to the bank, he went to different job interviews, which none of them panned out. When he wasn't in a job interview, he spent his time sitting in a train station reading a newspaper until it was time to go home. And as none of these job interviews worked out, time went on for months in months, he kept up this routine. John's elderly mother, Alma, was living in one of the mansion rooms with them at the time. John even began stealing money from his mother's bank account without her ever realizing. John even had his children get part-time jobs. Oddly enough, he told them that this was for them to learn how to be accountable and responsible with finances. But instead, he took the money that they earned and used it to pay for things that they needed around the house. And because the family didn't know and John played everything off like it was normal, their lifestyle didn't change. And he was quickly $11,000 behind on the mortgage. In November of 1971, John began telling people that the family was going to go to North Carolina to see Helen's mother, who was sick. He sent letters to the schools and jobs of the children, informing them that the kids would be out for a little while. John also canceled the milk, mail, and newspaper deliveries, and continued with the same story of visiting North Carolina for an extended time. 
On November 9th, 1971, everything changed. John didn't go through with his normal routine of getting dressed and pretending to go to work at a job that he didn't really have. Instead, he stayed home. While the three children were at school, John was home with Helen and Alma. John walked up behind Helen as she was sipping coffee in the kitchen, and he shot her in the back of the head. He then went up to the attic where Alma's room was. Alma was eating breakfast as John shot her in the back of the head also. Then, Patricia and Frederick arrived home from school. As they walked into the house, John stood behind them and shot them both in the back of the head. John then made himself lunch. After he ate, he drove to the bank and closed his mother's bank account and collected the last of her money. He then went to Westfield High School and watched his son, John Jr., play a soccer game. After the game, John drove him home. When they got to the house, John pulled out the gun to shoot his son. John Jr. didn't necessarily get caught from behind, though. He put up a fight over the gun. But in the end, his father shot him ten times, which led to his death. John then placed all of the bodies in sleeping bags, except Alma's, and moved them to the ballroom. John sat down at the desk to write the five-page letter to his pastor, in which he claimed that there was just too much evil in the world. In the letter, he also said that Alma's body was in the attic. He was unable to move her down to the ballroom with the others. He then cleaned up the house to get rid of the blood. He went through every photograph of the house and removed his picture from every single one of them. He turned the radio to a religious music station, and he played the music through the speakers to where it would fill the entire house. And then he disappeared. Once these gruesome and unbelievable murders were discovered by police, Westfield was in the national spotlight. Westfield was a charming little town, a place where stuff like this just didn't happen. And a nationwide manhunt was launched by the FBI. There was one big problem. John cut himself out of every picture in the house, so the FBI didn't have an accurate picture of what John looked like at the time. John's car was located at the JFK airport in New York City, but investigators couldn't find any evidence that he boarded a plane. There were just no signs of John anywhere. In 1972, Robert Clark, who went by Bob, he began an accounting job in Denver, Colorado. Bob pretty much kept to himself. He joined a Lutheran church and he ran a carpool service to transport people that were elderly and unable to transport themselves to church. Bob went on to work at a box manufacturing plant outside of Denver for several years. He just lived his quiet, normal life. And then Bob met Dolores Miller through his church, and they ended up getting married in 1985. In February of 1988, Bob and Dolores moved to Midlothian, Virginia, and Bob began working as an accountant. In May of 1989, it had been 18 years since the murders of the List family. Investigators continued to run into dead ends trying to find John, but everything was about to change thanks to a new TV show called America's Most Wanted, hosted by John Walsh. After telling the story of the List family, they showed an aged, progressed clay sculpture that was designed by a forensic artist of what John List was expected to currently look like. There were a lot of people that watched this episode of America's Most Wanted, but there were two key people. One was Dolores. She watched it in the living room of her home. Bob walked in towards the end of the episode, and he immediately began sweating. His heart began racing, and he left the room quickly. 
but whether Dolores was doing something else and just not paying attention to the show, she didn't notice that John List looked a lot like someone in her house. But back in Colorado, Bob's old neighbor saw the episode, and she was paying attention. She immediately contacted law enforcement and provided them with the information she knew about Bob and where he moved to. Eleven days after the episode of America's Most Wanted aired, law enforcement tracked down John, or Bob as he was called now, and they arrested him at his accounting job. John continued to deny his real name. He stuck with saying that he was Robert Clark and people knew him as Bob. Even though investigators took his fingerprints and they matched it to his military records, which showed he was John List. He kept this act up until February 16th of 1990, when he finally confessed who he really was. Which, I'm sure everyone was like, yeah, we already knew that, I'm just glad you're finally on board. At the trial, John claimed that his financial difficulties led him to a state of crisis. He felt like his options were to accept welfare or kill his entire family and send them to heaven. And in his mind, welfare would be looked at badly by his family and he would be humiliated. So he chose to murder them all. John was found guilty on April 12th, 1990, 18 years, 5 months, and 22 days after the murders, and he was sentenced to life in prison. John tried to appeal his conviction by saying that his confession letter should not have been admissible into court because it was a confidential communication to his pastor. Two things popped into my mind when I read this. First, I get that there are some really great defense attorneys that help their clients out a lot. I just wish I knew what was going through this attorney's mind as they were sitting there writing this appeal like, yeah, his confession letter that he left behind to murdering his wife, mom, and three kids should not be evidence. Then I wish I could see the judge's face when they read the appeal. Not surprisingly though, the federal appeals court rejected this appeal. In 2002, John did an interview with ABC News reporter Connie Chung. In the interview, he mentioned that he didn't kill himself because he believed if you killed yourself, you'd go to hell. So his thought process was he would kill his family, then ask for forgiveness, and then see them again one day in heaven. John died in March of 2008 from pneumonia at 82 years old. As horrible as this case is, there's a few key things to reflect back on. One, it's really small odds to see a fugitive on a true crime TV show or hearing about them on a podcast and then actually seeing them in real life, but it does happen. If it wasn't for this old neighbor of John's in Colorado paying attention and having this gut feeling that something was off, there's just no telling if John ever would have been caught. The second thing, John was suspected as being the infamous D.B. Cooper. If you're not familiar with who this is, I have an earlier episode where I covered that case. D.B. Cooper hijacked an airplane and demanded $200,000 in ransom. He then parachuted out of the plane and disappeared. The two biggest things that connected John to the D.B. Cooper case, he kind of looked like the sketch from witnesses of D.B. Cooper, and then also the hijacking happened two weeks after John disappeared. Once John was in custody, the FBI questioned him about the hijacking, and he denied being involved at all. Being that he was facing life in prison for murdering his entire family, hijacking a plane didn't seem like something to lie about, so the FBI no longer considers him to be D.B. Cooper. 
Then there's this. There was a skylight over the ballroom where he placed the bodies of his family. But it wasn't an ordinary skylight. It was an original work of Louis Tiffany, the world-class designer. If this name sounds familiar, you've probably heard it, seen it on documentaries or in stores, maybe even museums. His family started the luxury jewelry business, Tiffany & Co. It's estimated that the stained glass window was worth more than the house itself and enough to pay off all of the debts that John owed. And this is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode of Crime Nerds. Thank you for listening.